You're listening to Give Me the Bible with Len. Today's program is entitled Consciousness. Hello my radio friends, I'm glad you've joined me today and I hope you'll be challenged by the content of this program. Consciousness is a reality, although no one actually knows what it is. Dictionaries define consciousness as the state of being aware and responsive to one's surroundings. But even that definition is inadequate because we all experience what I would describe as inner thoughts like memories that are independent of one's immediate surroundings. I've read a number of articles on this subject, and one question that came to me was, where did consciousness first begin? Is consciousness a product of non-organic chemicals randomly colliding in some kind of liquid and suddenly or slowly coming to life? I'm afraid the story is far more complicated than that. Even if molecule A colliding with molecules B, C, D and E did happen, and if life arose from that, it would be purely a physical function. Mental function and consciousness is a completely different ball game. And I find the evolutionary explanation of the origins of life totally unsatisfactory. It is easy to say that one species turned into another, but to me that is far too simplistic. Even if millions of years are introduced to explain how one species became another, that doesn't help because of the huge probability of mistakes which would prohibit that particular life form from surviving during its intermediate formative period. An evolutionist claim that the operative factor causing species change is mutation. But the problem with that theory is that mutation is practically always negative. That is, genetically, there is less information rather than more. Therefore, Instead of life forms becoming increasingly complex, they become simpler, less complex. With humans, with each new generation, it's been found that there are from 100 to 300 new genetic mistakes, resulting in disfigurement, decreasing resistance to diseases, and increasing genetic syndromes such as allergies. And given enough time, because of degeneration in the human species, we would be so diseased and deformed that it would be impossible to stay alive. So, if evolution is unable to explain where consciousness originated, what is the alternative? Well, for me, there is only one answer, and that's found in that book of books, the Bible. In Genesis, the first book of the Bible, is the account of creation, 
about how God made the earth and its environment and the flora, uh, sorry, flora and fauna that exists in it. In chapter 2 of Genesis, verse 7, is this profound statement. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. And going on in verses 19 and 20, we read, And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air, and he brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. There have been some differences of opinion about how God made man. Some say God made a kind of clay model of a man and then gave it life. My own understanding is this. Just as God made the animals as mentioned in verse 19, living creatures, including man, were made of the elements and compounds that exist on the earth. These would be things such as carbon, hydrogen, calcium, nitrogen, and so on. Well, man <coughs> was made mature. Adam was a full-grown man, not a baby, not a monkey, not a protoplasm. Besides that, when God gave Adam life, he gave him intelligence, language, and consciousness. We know that because Adam was given the task of naming the animals. When God made man, he also gave him a sense of self-worth and of right and wrong, that's morality. Because, as it says in Genesis 2:15 and 16, And the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree in the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you may not eat of it. For in the day that you eat thereof you shall surely die. Our conscience and our moral understanding distinguish humans from animals, although some animals, such as dogs, may, if trained, recognize what is acceptable and unacceptable behavior. In an article, Science as We Know It Can't Explain Consciousness, But a Revolution is Coming, by Philip Goff, Assistant Professor of Philosophy in Durham University, Goff writes, Explaining something as complex as consciousness emerging from a grey jelly-like lump of tissue in the head is arguably the greatest scientific challenge of our time. The brain is an extraordinarily complex, complex organ, consisting of almost 100 billion cells, known as neurons, each connected to 10,000 others, yielding 10 trillion nerve connections. He goes on to say, We have made a great deal of progress in understanding brain activity, and how it contributes to human behaviour. 
But what no one has so far managed to explain is how all of this results in feelings, emotions, and experiences. How does the passing around of electrical and chemical signals between neurons result in feeling pain or an experience of the colour red? Goff outlines the problems associated with consciousness. The main one is that it is not possible to observe consciousness. Brain scans can pick up brain activity or lack of it, but cannot interpret that activity. Brain scans may show that there is activity, but are unable to show whether that consciousness is about being hungry, fearful, guilty or happy. Consciousness has been described as having two main aspects, they being local and global. Global consciousness refers to being aware of one's surroundings, how light, how warm, comfortable, what objects there are, the sounds and smells and the like. Local consciousness refers to the thoughts that one has at any given moment, like what you plan to do next, how to cope with that next stare, is my hair okay, can others see that I'm feeling embarrassed and that kind of thing. In her book, 36 Arguments for the Existence of God, Rebecca Newberger Goldstein examines the arguments for and against the existence of God. Argument 12 is called the argument from the hard problem of consciousness. And I've chosen five points out of the possible 12 that are used as evidence for the existence of God related to consciousness. And argument two is this. Consciousness is not a complex phenomenon built out of simpler ones. It can consist of irreducible raw feels, like seeing red or tasting salt all at once. In other words, at any given moment, consciousness is what you experience at that time, it being a mass of sensations not just a sum of individual ones. And then her fifth point was science cannot derive consciousness by reducing it to basic physical laws about the elementary constituents of matter and energy. And her seventh argument is the explanation for consciousness must lie beyond physical laws. Her eighth argument was, consciousness, lying outside physical laws, must itself be immaterial, that is, it has no physical substance. It is not something that can be seen or handled. And then her eleventh point, God has not only the means to impart consciousness to us, but also the motive, namely, 
to allow us to enjoy good life and to make it possible for our choices to cause or prevent suffering in others, thereby allowing for morality and meaning. I once heard someone say, Science is my God. But science is unable to explain consciousness except that it exists. The how, what, when, where questions remain unanswered. As a Christian who bases his life on the Word of God, the Bible, I am able to answer the question, where did consciousness come from, by accepting the account of the creation of man mentioned earlier. Now, I want to share with you a proposition put out by Blaise Pascal, a 17th century mathematician and philosopher, and his proposition was about God. This proposition is called Pascal's Wager. A wager is what we would call a bet, and it goes something like this, and we're going to go on with this straight after the break.
So what is Pascal's wager? Well, Pascal put up four propositions. And he said, if you believe God exists, you will gain everything because God promises that those who believe in him will gain eternal life. And if you don't believe, this is the second point, if you don't believe in God's existence, you'll gain nothing. You live, you die, and that's all you get. On the other hand, if you believe in God's existence, and if that is not true, then you haven't lost anything. You live, you die, just the same as most other people. But if you don't believe in God, when it is true that God exists, then you lose everything, because he promises eternal life to those who believe, and you have ignored him because of your unbelief. So how should you bet? Well, regardless of any evidence for or against the existence of God, Pascal argued that failure to accept God's existence risks losing everything with no payoff on any count. The best bet, then, is to accept the existence of God. So let's go back to consciousness. Under what conditions can consciousness exist? The answer is that consciousness depends on life. When the life of an animal or human ends, there is no consciousness for that particular individual. It requires a living being that breathes, has a heartbeat and blood flow to nourish the brain for consciousness to exist. Consciousness cannot exist separate from the living organism. In the Bible, in the Gospel of John, chapter 11, is the story of Lazarus, the brother of Mary and Martha. These people were special friends of Jesus, and they lived at Bethany. Bethany was on the road leading from Jerusalem to Jericho. It was about two kilometres from Jerusalem. Jesus and his disciples were out of the province of Judea when a messenger came with an urgent message saying that Lazarus was very sick. The implication was for Jesus to come quickly to heal him. Instead of leaving immediately, Jesus and his disciples stayed where they were for two more days. The disciples were concerned for Jesus' safety and cautioned him about going back toward Jerusalem because the Jews intended to assassinate him. At the same time, they knew Lazarus was a special friend of Jesus and wondered why Jesus did not take any action remotely or otherwise to heal his friend. And then Jesus said in verse 11, our friend Lazarus is asleep, but I will go to awaken him. And then verses 12 and 13, the disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. But Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then, Jesus referred to sleep as being synonymous with death. When you are asleep, your unconsciousness, 
although a sudden noise or something like that can waken you quickly. When you are in a deep sleep, you know nothing. You're alive but are not aware of anything. Sleep is a state of unconsciousness. And then following this, and then following this, Jesus plainly announced, Lazarus is dead. There is no consciousness in death. Later when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead and Lazarus came out of the tomb, he had nothing to say. Why? <laughs> because there was nothing to say. He had no consciousness while dead. So if consciousness is only present when someone is alive, why is it that various Protestant churches teach that at death the soul goes to heaven? I personally feel that such people have never bothered to think deeply about what they believe and don't understand what the soul actually means. In this case, the soul is consciousness. But consciousness cannot exist without a living body. Therefore, the premise that the consciousness goes to heaven is an impossible premise. However, when God made man, it says in Genesis 2-7, the Lord formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Soul, in this case, refers to a living person, that is, a body plus life. A dead body is not a soul because it lacks life. Life without a body is not a soul either. In fact, life without a body is impossible for human beings. In his myth of Ur, Plato, the Greek philosopher who lived about 400 BC, wrote that each soul is judged after death and is either sent to heaven for a reward to the, or to the underworld for punishment. After its reward or punishment, the soul, he said, is reincarnated. He also described the judgment of souls immediately after death in the dialogue Georgius. It is reasonable to suppose that the idea that consciousness and the body being separate entities originated in Western society because of the Greek influence, particularly because of Plato. And you know, it amazes me that such an idea is stuck and that so many believe it even in Christian circles. In Ecclesiastes 9 verse 6 in speaking about the dead is this statement, Their love, their hate and their jealousy have long since vanished. Never again will they have a part in anything that happens under the sun. And here the Bible states that any emotions people once had will cease to exist. And of course, emotions are part of consciousness. Again in Ecclesiastes is this statement. Chapter 9 verse 5 it says, 
for the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. That means there is no consciousness. And in Psalm 115 verse 17 is this statement, It is not the dead who praise the Lord, those who go down in silence. Well, why is that? The answer is simple, because consciousness ceases at death. And some very warped theories have grown up in some churches where they say that when someone dies, their soul, whatever that means, goes to heaven or hell. But that is not biblical. That doctrine came from somewhere else, like from the devil, who craftily announced at Eden when Eve told, Eve told him that by going against God, which is sinning, that she would die, and he said, You shall not die. Well, she did die. But as well as the belief in an immortal soul was born, and that belief has spawned a whole raft of other beliefs, all of which are false. One of those spin-off beliefs is about a secret rapture and what happens when Jesus comes again. But the Apostle Paul wanted the Thessalonian believers to understand the nature of death and about the coming of Jesus. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, wrote, Brothers, I do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep, that he means those who die. And then he explained that at Jesus' return, Christ will come down from heaven in great glory, visible and with great fanfare, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Who are the dead in Christ? Well, they are the saints. They are Christians who've been faithful to him. They rise transformed to receive eternal life as explained in the latter part of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Then they will receive consciousness and immortality, not before. Friends, don't be sucked in by the lies presented in some places as truth. Believe what the Bible says and you can't go wrong. When someone dies, their consciousness is gone, kaput, finished. But if you are faithful to the Lord, you will live again.